if, you, if you're new, um, we've been going through a series uh, in the book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes, and we're going to continue in that book today because it's really relevant to Easter, uh, but it's also just relevant to all of our lives. And the, the, the main theme of this book is that life is frustrating. And here's something I know that most of you had a hard week this week. And that's not because I was spying on you, not most of you, but, um, but life is just difficult, right? So I can say with most confidence, unless one of you is like, no, it was the best week of my life. And then some people will probably hit you that are sitting next to you. But most of you probably had a hard week this week, whether that's money problems or it's job problems or it's relationship drama with, with different people that we, that we probably had a hard week this week, that life is rough, life is tough, that there's a lot of stuff that's complicated that we complain about. That's why, and I, I think this is really interesting, this is, this is why as a society, as a culture, we love it. We have a phrase, misery loves company, right? We love to see other people kind of going through a hard time. And we don't like to see people like die and completely suffer, but we like to see a little bit of, a little bit of hurt and tragedy in other people's lives because it makes us feel a little bit better. That's why there's things like this. This is uh, from, let's see here. This is from, hey, can you switch this for me, Rebecca? Uh, this is, um, I'll show you something in one second. This is from BuzzFeed. <laughs> And this says 32 people who are having a way worse day than you. And, and we love that kind of stuff, right? I mean, those things pop up all the time. And we, we just like it because it helps us go, yeah, maybe my day is bad. Maybe my week is bad. But there's other people that are having a hard time too. And so here's one of those pictures. I think, Rebecca, it's going to be me and you together. So here's one of these pictures. It says, hey, at least you didn't make this mistake. My sister thought Nair was shampoo. <clears throat> and... I don't, I don't know if this is real, because I just don't imagine someone could really do that, but who knows? And here's, here's another one. This one uh, says, anyone who has to use this bathroom, and somebody installed the stalls, which I am the least handy person in the world, so I can see myself doing this. Here's, here's the next one. Uh, this says, anyone whose kid got home sent home with this terrifying note, and it selects the reason, and it says, bowel movement, and then it says, check backpack. <laughs> If I was a teacher, I would do that even if it wasn't true, just for fun, you know? Uh, here's, a, here's another one. This says, the residents of Rockford, Illinois, and I, I love this. It's a billboard by Taco Bell, and it says, voted Rockford's number one best Mexican restaurant, which is sad for those people. Um, just very sad. And then it just kind of gets out of control. 28 TV characters who are having a worse day than you. 13 turkeys who are having a worse day than you. 16 sims, I didn't know that was still around, that are having a worse day than you. 23 Scottish people. It just kind of keeps going, right? I mean, it just we like this kind of stuff. That's why in movies, and you can go to the next uh, thing, that's why in movies and in uh, articles and all sorts of stuff, there's always been a little bit of this flavor of, hey, you can look at other people that are having a hard time because we have a hard time because life is frustrating because life is difficult and misery loves company. And probably this week, some of you had, most of you probably had a hard week in some ways, a difficult week in some ways. And we can laugh about that, but we also cry about that. And it's only a few moves from frustrating to then devastating. It's only a few moves from, hey, we can laugh at these things and it's kind of frustrating, it's kind of irritating and traffic is bad, and man, they don't get me, and whoops. I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of stuff we laugh about, but there's only a couple moves from frustrating to devastating, from laughter to tears. And so what do we do with this? This is what we'll kind of explore today. 
is, one, one of the questions I want us to ask is, is why is it that the, the, the frustrations of life can anger us so much? And what do we do about it? And what does God do about it? So the author of Ecclesiastes begins to explore this topic and he, he, he's been talking about all the different things that are frustrating in life. And if you've been here for the last several weeks, we've been talking about all the different things that are frustrating with life. But, but then he moves into the most frustrating thing of all in life, which is not just the frustrating stuff, but the devastating stuff, death. And this is what he says. He says this, But all this I laid to heart, all the different things that he's observed, all the different problems in this world, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. He says, yes, we're in the hand of God, but sometimes it's hard to tell. Is that love? Is it hate? Sometimes it can be hard to tell in our lives. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that, look, there's people that make sacrifices to God and they do religious rituals and there's people that are wise and there's people that are righteous, but the same thing happens to everybody. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. The one that says, I swear, God, I I will always follow you. I'll always do what you say. It's the same thing as a person that doesn't like to make any oaths. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So here's what he's saying, and and, uh, here's the next part. He says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. So he says, look, everybody everybody dies, right? Everybody dies. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad or wise or foolish or, or whatever. Everybody dies. Everybody experiences the frustration in life. The same event happens to all, But, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion, in case you were wondering. Um, the point with that is dogs then were just really mangy creatures, and, and lions were these beautiful, majestic creatures. And he's saying it's better to be a, a living, mangy creature than a dead lion, because you have life. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So here's the point, and here's the question we need to look at. What angers us about death uh, and the frustrations of life? We, we have all sorts of frustrations in life. Death is really just the apex of that. De- death is the climax of all that we're frustrated with. And, and maybe this seems like an obvious question. What angers us about death and the frustrations of life? And you say, well, it's the thing. It's bothering me. But he gives us a clue. When we look at our life and you look at your week and you look at what's been frustrating to you, here, here's part of what is so, so upsetting. So we can't control it. You can't control it. You can say, I'm going to live a good life. You still die. You can say, I'm going to be healthy. And you still have a frustrating week. You still die. You still get sick. It doesn't matter if you do Whole30 or you're gluten-free. You'll still get sick. You'll still die. And here's what's frustrating. He says the same event happens to all. And he goes through all the different categories. Look, there's people that are so religious. Everything they do, they're thinking about God and they're thinking about oaths to God and swearing. And and life is still frustrating. Here's what angers us about life. 
that we can't control it. It's death is inescapable. Frustration is inescapable. We cannot control it. Can't control it with our health. We can't control it with our youth. I remember when I was in eighth grade, there was this gal that was a cross-country runner, and she was there early in the morning and dropped dead. Just no, nothing before had ever happened, just died. And she was healthy, and she was young, and the whole school was freaking out of like, how could this happen? And here's what he says angers us about death and the frustrations of life. We cannot control it. The same event happens to all. The same event happens to all. There's no control. I love uh, some of you maybe saw the Oscar uh, nominated, Golden Globe nominated movie Fences with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. And uh, it's a great movie based on a a play. And there's this part where Denzel, and I'm going to make a quote from him, but I'm not going to try to sound like him because that would be a huge mistake. Um, even though I would probably do it by myself, but this, uh, not probably, I I do, Um, just laying all my cards on the table. Uh, But here's what he says. He loses somebody really close to him. He loses somebody that he loves. He loses somebody that's close to him. And and he gets in this argument. He gets in this this, uh, kind of face-off with death. And and here's what he says. He says, all right, Mr. Death, I'm going to take and build me a fence around this yard. I'm going to build me a fence around what belongs to me. And then I want you to stay on the other side. See, you stay over there until you're ready for me. Now, here's what he's trying to do. Here's what he's trying to do that we really can't do. He's trying to control death. He's trying to control the frustration in life. It's affected him. He's lost people he loves. And so he says, which the title of the movie comes from, I'm going to build a fence around my life, death, and you need to stay over there. Don't touch what's mine. I'm going to build a fence around my life and I want frustration out of my life and I want death out of my life and I want suffering out of my life. I'm going to build a fence around my life and I don't want it to touch me until I'm ready for it to touch me. And what Solomon tells us, what the author of Ecclesiastes says is, you know, part of why we're really angry, you know, part of why we're really frustrated with with the frustrations and things that we have in life, it's because we cannot control it can't control it. It's inescapable. No matter how much we try, no fences, no, no health, no youth, nothing will control it. Here, here's the reality. Against death, against frustration, against suffering, we cannot win. We can't win. It will win every time. It'll win every time. So what should our response be then? What do we do with that? If that's the reality, if that's the case, then what should our response be? How do we respond if if there's always going to be death and there's always going to be suffering and there's always going to be frustration? What should our response be? How do we handle this difficulty? Do we despair? Do we run away and avoid thinking about it? Sometimes this is what we do, right? We have frustration, we have suffering in our life, and the way that we handle that, the way that we deal with that is we just try to avoid it, we try not to think about it. What do we do? And here's what he he says. Here's the next part of the text. He says this, go, eat your bread with joy. This guy loves bread. If you've been here, he always is talking about bread. I don't, I don't, or, you know, eat your lettuce wrap with joy for those of us that are gluten-free. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. He's saying God has blessed you. These are gifts from God that, that we can enjoy. 
Let your garments be always white. He's saying, look, put on nice clothes. Don't sulk. Don't, you can still celebrate, even though this is the case with death. You can put on nice clothes or let not oil be lacking on your head, which that's kind of weird, but he's just saying, put on perfume, smell good, put on good clothes, eat good, drink good, enjoy life. And he's writing from his perspective, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's the place of the dead, to which you are going. So here's what he says. Here's his point. How do we deal with the reality of frustrations and death? You know what he says? He says, you need to enjoy life. You need to engage it fully. How how do you deal with a week that's difficult, that's hard, where there's suffering, where there's death, where there's frustration, where people that you love have betrayed you, where money is not what you thought it was going to be, where the job doesn't turn out the way you hoped it would be, where work doesn't turn out the way you thought it would be? What do you do with that? And here's what he says. Enjoy life. Soak it up. Do your best. Now, look, this is the answer that's always given in our world whenever tragedy strikes. Uh, If there's some sort of national disaster or if um, there's a school shooting or if there's something horrible that happens, usually what is said is, hey, go home, hold your children tight, spend time with those you love, do some things that you enjoy, go smell the flowers, right? Usually whenever there's some sort of tragedy or some sort of hardship that happens, that's, that is the same response that the world around us usually gives, and it's a good answer, right? Say, man, yes, life is hard, so what do we do right now? How do we respond? It's, man, go enjoy what you can enjoy while you can enjoy it. Or maybe most iconically uh, represented in the Tim McGraw song, which is live like you were dying, right? He finds out he has cancer, and then what's he do? He, he says, I'm going to go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, right? <laughs> 2.7 seconds. Scott, can you come back up here? Let's, uh, no. So, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's what the answer is, right? It's, here's the best answer. That, here's the best answer that is in the world. It's what do you do when life is rough, when it's complicated, when it's frustrating, when there's death, when you know that death is looming, the ultimate frustration for you, when you know that death is going to happen to those you love, what do you do? And he says, here's what you do. You enjoy life. You work hard, you, you embrace what you have while you have it. But, but just like life, and this is part of why I love this book, just like life, and, and for those of you in this room that are the cynics like I am, just like life, you go, okay, that's nice, that's fine. But what happens when I go eat and drink and go skydiving and, and death comes again and frustration comes again? And here's what he says. Here's the very next part right after he's like, yes, go eat and drink. And then he says this again. I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net. The fish never sees it coming, right? And like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Here's what he's saying. Yes, go eat your bread. Go drink your wine. Go enjoy life. 
go work hard. But then what happens when you're wearing white and you're eating and drinking and then there's oil on your head and you die? Or, or new frustration comes in. What happens when you finally made friends and they leave you? What happens when you finally got a job and a new boss comes in? What happens when everything is going well and you said, you know what, life is hard, but I'm going to still enjoy it. I'm going to still engage with it. I'm going to still Rocky Mountain climb and I'm going to still Fu Manchu and all that. I'm going to still do it. And then just like in real life, he interrupts himself and says, yeah, 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 that's good. But guess what's coming for you? Guess what's coming at an unexpected time? You know, one of the members in our church here, their dad died suddenly this last week of a heart attack, just like that. And that's what he says happens. He says, you, you don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. You don't know when it's going to happen. And even as you're trying to counter it by enjoying life, it'll come again. So this kind of leaves us frustrated, right? Because we get this answer of, here's what you can do. You can sing along with Tim McGraw. But what happens when you're singing along in the car with Tim and then you get in a car accident? What do we do? See, this book is not offering us many answers. It, answers, it gives us a lot of questions. It gives us not a lot of resolutions, but it gives us a lot of frustrations. And it kind of leaves us hanging. You see, the best answer that we do have in this world, the best answer that we do have, the best answer that we can give to ourselves in the middle of death and in the middle of frustration, the best that we can give to ourselves is what he said. And what Tim McGraw says, that is the best that we have. But the book leaves us hanging. It leaves us hanging, wanting something more than just that. It leaves us wanting something more than just eat, drink, put oil on your head, and and it's going to still come and get you. It leaves us wanting something more than that. So what is God's answer to the suffering and death that we face? What, What is God's answer to the suffering, to the frustration, to whatever's going on in your... What is God... Look, what is God's answer to your suffering and your frustration and your hurt and the death around you? What is God's answer to that? Because the author of Ecclesiastes kind of says, look, this is all I got, but it leaves us wanting something more. What what is God's answer? Here's what happens. We get to the New Testament. And the New Testament shows us a different answer. Here's what it says. It says this, and this is where we get to the resurrection. And I'm going to read a good chunk of this, and then we'll come back to it. But it says this. If Christ has not been raised, he's going to say, this is Paul writing to a church in the city of Corinth. And and, and he's going to say that the resurrection is so important. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. He says, if Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead, the preacher should shut up. And all of you have wasted your faith. It's in vain. It's meaningless. We are even found, talking about those that that preach the word of God, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're liars. We're false. We're crooks. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, saying he was the first one and after him, we will also be resurrected and have new bodies one day. For as by a man, now he's talking about Adam in the very beginning of the Bible, for as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he says. And, and I'll, I'll come back to this in a second, but, but here's what he says. What's God's answer to the suffering and death we face? It is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And see, here's, here is the reality. And this is what I said before. We can't win. Frustration will always win. Suffering will always win. Death will always win. We can't win. But Jesus did win. Jesus did beat death. The enemy of death, Jesus did defeat through the cross and the resurrection. Now, here, now here's something I have to say just because I know in a room like this and there's people all over the place and different beliefs. I mean, Paul is saying everything hinges on the resurrection. Paul is saying everything. Our faith is futile and our sins. I mean, he says everything hinges on the resurrection. But is there any reason to believe that? Do we have good reason to believe the resurrection? I'm going to tell you how the resurrection is God's answer to our frustration and the death that we experience. But I think first, we have to just ask, is there any actual reason to believe the resurrection? If Paul says everything hinges on that, do we have any reason to actually believe that? And look, maybe you're a Christian and, and you've believed for a long time, but do you know why you believe? That's important. And maybe you're not a Christian, or you're not sure what you believe, or or you believe in God, but you're not sure what you believe about Jesus and all this cross and resurrection stuff. And is there any, I mean, Paul says it all hinges on this. Is there any reason to, to believe this? Is there any actual reason to believe it? And here's, here's what I want to say to you. You should doubt it. You should doubt the resurrection. You should doubt all sorts of things. You, you shouldn't just believe everything that everybody tells you. Especially if Paul says, look, everything of history hinges on this. You should doubt. You should question. You shouldn't just say, oh, yeah, a guy died and rose again. Sweet. Okay. You shouldn't do that. There's a lot of people selling a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of things that there's, especially in our day and age of fake news and this and that. I mean, all sorts of stuff. You should doubt. You should question. So, do we have any reasons to believe what Paul says about the resurrection. And look, so much has been written about this, and there's been so many volumes that have been written. And so we're going to go through all of them right now. Um, no, I just, but there's, a, there's I'm going to give you two, I'm going to give you two reasons uh, that I think are just worth considering. And wherever you are, and I mean, if, if, if this just piques your interest, then explore it further. But I'm just going to give you two reasons that, that we should think about that give us some reasons to believe in the resurrection. And the first is this. Uh, Paul actually says, 
Paul actually says in the same letter that here, here is why you should believe that the resurrection, the fact that Jesus died and rose again, which is a big deal, that's based on eyewitnesses. People actually saw it. And here's what Paul says in the same letter in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's saying, I'm telling you what I was told. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, here's why this is important. I know you can go, well, that's in the Bible, so why should I believe it since it says it in the Bible? But if it, it can't, it's just kind of circular, right? But here, here's the reality. That document, and you can go Google this, okay? Fact check it. That document, 1 Corinthians, was written. This is something that everybody agrees on. This is not something that's my opinion. Google it. 15 to 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' death. That document was written 15 to 20 years after that. And here's Paul's point. Here's why in a public document, that would have been something that was stood up and read before the church. 15 to 20 years after, here's what Paul is saying. Go check it out. That's his point. That's why he says, look, Cephas saw it and the 12 saw it. And there's 500 other people that saw it. You can go ask them. That's what he's saying. In 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death, that is a document that was written. This is before even the Gospels were written, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the books that tell the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a very early, the earliest letter that says, look, Jesus rose from the dead, and if you don't believe me, you can go check it out. You can go ask people about it. And that's how it functioned in the early church. That's how it functioned, that people didn't just take it by, oh, okay, thanks, You see, here's what's different about the resurrection of Jesus. It is not a claim that says, I was by myself, I had a private vision, I was in a cave, I was in the forest, I was on a mountain, and I was all alone, and God told me this, and now I'm telling you. That is not what this says at all. This is all, the the New Testament is always saying, go check it out. Hundreds of people saw it, and they put names And that's just one example. There's other examples where they say, go ask Rufus and go ask this person and go, because it was happening live right then and there. This is also why in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first people, the first people to the tomb, the first people that saw Jesus raised from the dead, the first people, it was women. And that might not be a big deal to us, but back then, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. And one of the things that critics of Christianity said early on was, how can we believe you when you're claiming women saw it happen first? Now, obviously, we don't, I'm not saying that's right. But the point is, if the authors were trying to make something up, they wouldn't have done that. They would have said, there was these four awesome dudes that are very credible that all saw, they wouldn't have said all four of them and women saw it first and women saw it first. They would have known that that would have been a point of contention. They would have known that that would have been something that people would have tried to dig up to say, look, we can't trust it. It was women, but they did it anyway. What other reason would they have for doing that unless they wanted to stick to what actually happened? So so one reason to believe is simply this. There's eyewitness accounts. That's what the authors claim. A second reason is this. There was a huge change in Jesus' followers. See, it went from this small group of people that were scared, 
that were poor. It wasn't, it wasn't a big following. Again, historically, Christianity I mean, just started off as this small, I mean, very small little movement of people. A small little gathering of people. But it spread. It spread throughout the Roman Empire and people died for this fact that he rose from the dead. Now look, here's, here's the thing. People die all the time for what they believe in, right? That's not unique to Christianity. People die all the time for what they believe in. But the point is, people don't willingly die for a lie. People don't willingly say, hey, we made up this whole resurrection thing and we made up this whole women thing. And we made up all this stuff and now let's go die for it. People die for what they believe in and it might be false, but people don't die for something that they know they made up. And in fact, what's interesting is this, before, before Jesus and after Jesus, there was a lot of people that claimed to be a Messiah, a Savior, the Jewish Messiah. See, the Jews were waiting for this Messiah, this Savior that would come and he would free them and deliver them. And there was a lot of other people before and after Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah. This is just a list from uh, Wikipedia. And uh, this is, uh, you can find this yourself, but it's just a, a, a list of, and there's way more than this, I just put a sampling. But this, these are people that claim to be the Messiah, uh, the Jewish Messiah. And Jesus is on there as well, because uh, he claimed that and was correct. But uh, one of them is <laughs> Simon of Perea, who was a former slave, and he was uh, before Jesus. He claimed to be the Messiah. After Jesus, uh, I don't know how to say these people's names, but I'm going to do it, uh, Athronges, and uh, he was around the same time of Jesus, a shepherd-turned-rebel leader. And this is one of the most popular guys. He actually uh, did a pretty good job. Uh, Simon Bar Kokhba, he founded a short-lived Jewish state, and then he was defeated in the Second Jewish-Roman War. And then after him, this guy is, this one makes me laugh. Uh, sadly, uh, but I have that kind of sense of humor. It says Moses of Crete, so he thought, since his name was Moses, uh, who in about 440 persuaded the Jews of Crete to walk into the sea as Moses had done to return to Israel. And it just says the results were disastrous. And he, <laughs> and he soon disappeared. So it sounds like he was saying, hey, you go first. And then he's like, oh, that didn't work. See ya. <laughs> but here, here's the point. There was a lot of people that claimed to be the Messiah. And there was a lot of people afterwards that claimed to be the Messiah. But you know what happened? You know what happened? They died. And when they died, the movement died. If somebody says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, this still happens today, right? David Koresh and Jim Jones. When people say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, I'm God, and then they die, the movement doesn't continue. People go, guess we were wrong. Time to move along. Or same thing when people, you know, sometimes every so often it's like, the end of the world is happening in 2000, Y2K, or the end of the world is happening in 2010, and people sell their stuff, and then it happens, and it comes, and people go, oh, guess not. I mean, they don't keep staying in that movement. If, the, if somebody says, I'm the Messiah, and then they die, the movement dies. Jesus showed up, and he said, I'm the Messiah, and there wasn't a big following. Some people believed, and some people didn't believe, and there was kind of a poor following of marginalized people poor people. But something happened. Something changed where the movement didn't die out when he died. The movement continued. The movement grew. The movement expanded. The movement went throughout all the Roman Empire and then eventually all over the world and and hundreds and then thousands and then millions came to believe. Something changed that was different from all previous and all following 
claims. So do we have reasons to believe this? There's a lot we could talk about. There's a lot we could talk about with that, but I think those are two important things to consider. Something crazy happened that changed history. Something crazy happened that, that changed this small group of Jewish people to have their beliefs radically changed and their community radically changed that this would take place. So I think that's important to say because if Paul says, you know what God's answer is to the suffering and death we face, it's the resurrection. It's important to go, do we actually have reason to believe the resurrection? So God's answer to the suffering and death we face is the resurrection. And, and here, here's how. Here's why. Here, here's what that means. You see, what, what Paul said in the text that we read earlier, and really, and Solomon said it as well, death and frustration, it comes into the world through sin. Paul says, through one man's sin. See, when, when, when Adam and Eve, when man and woman were made, and, and they decided, and we do the same thing. When we decide, I want to live for myself instead of God. That's what the Bible calls sin. I'm going to live for me. I'm going to do it my way. I want to live based on my own uh, opinions and rules and thoughts, and I want to assess what I want to do, and I want to be the center of my own life. When we do that, that's what the Bible calls sin. And the Bible says that sin came into the world through one man, through Adam and Eve, and that death came through sin. That death came into this world. All the different corruption and frustration. This is not the way the world's supposed to be. Death is not the way the world is supposed to be. And frustration is not the way. And suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. And says that came into the world. But Jesus did something to change that. See, what Paul says is death comes from sin. And on the cross, Jesus says, I take your sin on myself. That for those that put their trust in him, Jesus says, I will deal with your sin. Death has entered into the world, but I'll take it all on me. I will die in your place for your sin. And the resurrection says, not just that I've died for your sin, but, but now I have defeated death and sin, and I bring to you life. Because Jesus has reversed the effects of sin, death. He's dealt with sin. He's dealt with death, which means this. God's answer to the suffering and death we face, here, here's what that actually looks like in our life. Here's a couple ways that that looks like. First is this, it, it means our future is different. See, when we're going through frustration or you're going through death, one of the things we need is hope. One of the things we need is, man, this isn't the end. This isn't all there is. Life isn't just like this. That's one of the things that we need so desperately. And the resurrection shows us that. I love uh, J.R. Tolkien. He is um, my father. No, he's not really, but I, uh, he, I wish. Um, he, he wrote Lord of the Rings and all sorts of other uh, great things. And he, he wrote a, an essay called On Fairy Stories. And he talks about why we love uh, these fantasy stories. If you think about it, this is just a photo of Dis all the different Disney movies, right? And we love these, and whether it's Disney when we're kids or, or adults, uh, now they've made the live action ones too to hook you again, but there's, there's, there's these stories when we're kids, Disney, or then as you grow, there's sci-fi and fantasy and all these, these stories that are kind of these stories about time and story, where time is not, you know, there's time travel or time shifts and there's talking animals and there's victory over the bad guy. And there's, I mean, we love these stories. 
The stories that sell the most in whether it's uh, books or, or media is not usually the stuff that wins the Oscars, even though those are good movies. It's the, block, the multi-million, billion-dollar movies or the fantasy, sci-fi, Disney movies because there's something in our souls that resonates with the themes in there. There's something in our souls that resonates with the, the stuff that the fantasy movies say. And here's what J.R.R. Tolkien said. He says this, uh, this is actually uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor um, and best-selling author in Manhattan. And he says this about Tolkien. He says, Tolkien makes a full disclosure of his belief at the end of that essay on fantasy stories, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. There's something about the good news of Jesus that pulls together all the different themes we love in Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Beauty and the Beast and pulls them all together. And it says, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, if he really is the son of God and you believe in him, all these things that you long for most desperately will come true at last. It says we will escape time and death. One of the things that the fantasy stories help us or make us want. We will know love without parting happily ever after. We will even communicate with non-human beings, think angels, and we will see evil defeated forever. In fairy stories, especially the best and most well-told ones, we get a temporary emotional reprieve from a real world, from the world of Ecclesiastes, in which our deepest desires are all violently rebuffed. But if we believe the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, we are assured that all those longings will be fulfilled in real time, space, and history. Here's what, here's what this is saying. Here's what the resurrection says. There's something we love about fantasy and sci-fi and, and fairy tales. There's something we love that speaks to our heart about, man, there's hope out there in the future that I want. And Tolkien says it's this repressed desire that we have, that we long for those things. And in the gospel, the resurrection says, look, the world that we know, death as we know, frustration as we know, is not what was meant to be. But the resurrection says Jesus has dealt with it. The resurrection says Jesus has dealt with the enemy. He's dealt with death. We can't win over death, but Jesus did. And second thing, here's what Here's what God's answer uh, to the suffering and death we face, the resurrection. Here's the last thing. It's this. It's not just the future, but it's now. I see Paul said that, that, that Jesus brings life to us now, that we can be alive in him now. It's not just one day. It's not just that the suffering and the, the hard stuff that you're going through will be dealt with. It's that right now you can have life with Jesus. Right now, you can experience forgiveness. Right now, you can experience joy. Right now, you can experience Him coming into your life. See, the best answer that we have in this world, the best answer we have in this world is this. In the middle of my suffering, in the middle of my hurt, I need joy to enter in. Some sort of joy, wine, food, the wife of my youth, all the different things that Solomon, I need some sort of joy to enter in. And Paul says, what about this? What if there was an even greater joy than that? What if Jesus entered into your life in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the frustration, in the middle of the death that you experience? What if, what if, what if we were still frustrated in life? What if, we still, what if we couldn't build a fence around life? What if there was still death in life, but that Jesus crossed the fence and Jesus came into our suffering and our death and we could have life with him? That's what Paul says the resurrection means. 
So what I'm going to do right now is show you a video that I think uh, from our community, a story that happened here a few handful of months ago, and I'm um, going to show you a video and, um, that illustrates this, and then I'm going to come back up and uh, give some closing, some closing thoughts. So I've got to move this back here. Can you put on the hold music really quick? No, I'm just kidding. All right, go for it, Rebecca. My name is Joni Bailey, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. My name is Adam Bailey. I grew up in Northern California, and now I'm in Colorado for about three years. Before we found True Life, we were in kind of a, a pretty tense spot in terms of our relationship. We felt like when we came to True Life, various layers um, about us started to get peeled back. It was probably around January or so, and I had found out that I was pregnant, um, which was a little bit of a surprise. You know, we really kicked into kicked into gear in July, um, and we just really started to kind of make a make a place um, for him in our apartment, and um, we uh, just kind of started buying things and kind of just getting ready ready in that way, and um, we were so excited. We had two family reunions, one in Iowa and one in Florida, kind of back to back, and it was going to be kind of our last big trip that we were going to take um, before I couldn't fly anymore. Um, so we had, you know, hopped on the plane, we were in Iowa, um, had been there maybe a day or so, um, when I just kind of felt like something wasn't quite right. Got to the hospital and we were both just really nervous, um, just kind of the whole way. And um, they um, went to do the heartbeat test and they couldn't find a heartbeat. I remember just the look on the nurse's face when she told me he's gone. I was just despair. And and then I knew I realized that because she was some months along that I realized we were gonna have to give birth. And I was like, I don't I feel like, you know, walking through all of that, that God was right there. Um, I feel like he was, you know, walking alongside, uh, you know, just being like, I was so happy when you were happy. And I, um, you know, was so sad when you were sad. We came home and just, you know, really bad shape obviously and um we came home to a totally cleaned house say somebody sarah had gotten in somehow and they had like there's like a giant pile of cards and there's probably 12 vases of flowers and our car was clean inside and the outside and our bathroom was clean and um they had done us like a, a meal sign up for like all of August. The amount of love that our church showed us in 
just after what happened. Um, it is just still so astounding. It was such, it was just such a clear picture of um, just how God calls us to treat each other um, when we walk through things like this. I think, I just remember going through that and thinking to myself like, who are these people? <laughs> and who is this God that they worship? And I was, it was just so wonderful. So wonderful. I just remember thinking like, I just want to be with, with our community group. I just want to be with them. I don't want to just, you know, say we need a, a break from you. I just wanted to kind of be, be back with everyone just because, you know, they feel like, they feel like family. And I, you know, just wanted to, kind of wanted to walk through this with family. It was just so great every two weeks to have, you know, a group of girls just saying, hey, where are you with this? And um, just really kind of really pushed me to walk through just the whole grieving process um, that, you know, I probably would have had the tendency to short circuit. There's family here uh, that loves Jesus and it's not the perfect family, but it's a wonderful family. Yeah, we can we can thank them for sharing uh, that story with us as it's encouraging. And I, I think um, I wanted to share that because I think it, it really illustrates and shows what it means when Jesus says that the resurrection, that the resurrection deals with the suffering and the frustrations and the death that we experience, both that there is hope for a greater future that is true, but that right now the life of Jesus can come into our life. Uh, through, through community often is how the body of Christ shows the life of Christ to us. And so as we close, let me, let me just ask this question, and, and I know we're all over the spectrum in the room here, but, but what does this mean for us? What does it mean as you think about Jesus? What does it mean as you think about the frustrations and the death maybe that's even in your life? What does it mean? And if you're not a Christian, here's, here's what I would say. I'm just going to speak to uh, some different groups of people in here. If you're not a Christian, and maybe you're here today because someone invited you or you're investigating things, my encouragement to you would be this. Just explore. Explore. If Paul is right and if everything hinges on who Jesus is and if the resurrection did happen, what would that mean for your life? I think your frustrations with life are valid. Your questions about Jesus or Christianity are valid. But explore. Ask questions. Maybe those frustrations point somewhere, as Solomon's did. Second thing is, is this. For those of you that maybe are just visiting and you're checking stuff out, maybe you even are a Christian or you believe in God or you have some sort of faith and you're checking stuff out, but, but maybe you're doing it by yourself. Maybe you're trying to experience life with God by yourself and you know what you miss out on? You miss out on that. You miss out on being able to experience the life of Jesus really come into your life because that mainly happens through other people that are filled with Jesus, that are then representing and showing and loving you the way that Jesus has. And so maybe you're somebody that's checking stuff out and maybe you believe stuff even for a long time and maybe you've believed in God and maybe even been a Christian, but you're doing that really by yourself and you don't have anything close to that. And my encouragement to you would be, man, find a family here. Find a community here. That's what Jesus wants for you. He wants more than just you and him doing it alone. 
He wants a family for you. He wants community for you. And we want that for you. That's why this church exists. And finally, maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're a part of this church. Maybe you believe everything. Maybe everything I've said is great. You agree with it. But, but here's my question for the rest of us. Does this define you? It's, see, the resurrection of Jesus is not a casual fact. It's not something that we can just say, oh, yeah, that's nice that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that. It's not a casual fact. It is something that is the defining thing such that Paul said, if it's not true, I'm a liar. I'm a crook. I'm a swindler. You should throw me off the stage. You are wasting all of your time by sitting here. He says, this is of first importance. This is of absolute necessity. This changes everything. This defines reality. And so my question for you, if you are a Christian, if you, if you say, man, I, I, yes, I believe in Jesus, and yes, he rose from the dead, does that truly define you? Is that everything to you? Or is it some casual fact that's stored away as a, a childhood story? And what God would want for us is to experience life with him and have the resurrection change the frustrations that we deal with, the suffering we deal with, the difficulty we deal with, and to change every part of us. And that's what we want. That is what true life is. So as we close, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion. There's four different communion stations up here. And when you're ready, you can come down the center and dip a piece of bread or, or gluten-free cracker in the, in the juice and then walk back to your spot. And when we take communion, what we remember is this, that Jesus died on the cross, in our place, for our sins. And then he rose from the dead to bring us life with him. And so we'll, we'll take communion, and then what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do baptisms. And baptism is a way that we celebrate exactly this. That, that we have, that our, our life has been dead, buried, just as Jesus' life was dead and buried. And then when he rose from the dead, because of that, we have life with him. We have a new identity. We have a new name. We have a new calling. We have a new mission. We have a new purpose. We have a new family. That's what baptism represents. And it represents the cleansing of our sin, the repentance of our sin. And so we will baptize some people and they'll share their story with you. So we're going to we're going to do that now. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we will enter a time of singing and responding. Father, thank you for these great truths. I thank you, Jesus, that you died for us and rose for us, that you bring us life with you. God, I pray for everybody in this room right now, no matter where they are, whether they don't believe anything, whether they uh, believe it all, God, where, wherever we are in this room, in our different places, I pray even as we continue that, that you would take the words that have been spoken and, and pour them into our hearts. And as we uh, sing and we take communion, we see baptism, that you would use all of that, Lord, to draw us more so to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.